This is the Only in Miami show, sponsored by Morningside Mortgage Corporation of Bay Harbor Islands. Tonight's show is hosted by Grant Stern. Find out more about our sponsor at www.morningsidemortgage.com. That's www.morningsidemortgage.com. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. Well, if you're in your car and you're stuck in traffic and judging by my trip in here, you are, kick those shoes off and relax because we have a phenomenal show planned for you on the eve of a historic general election tomorrow. Tonight we have two amazing authors who will be appearing at the Miami Book Fair International. We have Craig Pittman, who wrote, Oh, Florida, how America's weirdest state influences the rest of the country. And he will be joining us at the top of the hour. Craig is a author who has, well, if you haven't read him yet, you've probably actually seen some of his news reports with the Tampa Bay Times, and he will be joining us at the top of the hour. Then, later on, we will hear from uh, Libby Chamberlain. She is the founder of a secret Facebook group called Pantsuit Nation. This secret Facebook group is in the news, and we spoke with its founder because Libby's group went from zero people to, and I'm kidding you not, 1.8 million members who all support Hillary Clinton within just two weeks. Then we will hear from Marvin Dunn. He wrote A History of Florida Through Black Eyes, and he will also be at the Miami Book Fair International, which is happening November 13th through the 21st at Miami Dade's uh, Wolfson Campus. The Miami Dade College Wolfson Campus, downtown Miami, will host the Miami Book Fair International. And we're going to finish the show with Democratic Congressman Ted Deutsch. He'll be calling in at the end of the hour to discuss this historic election. But this is the part of the program where I get a few minutes to speak directly with you, the listening audience, about issues of importance that affect us throughout South Florida and sometimes beyond. At the risk of being repetitive, I'd like to start by pointing everybody to the website, onlyinmiami.co. There is a quick voter guide at onlyinmiami.co, and it tells you every single important issue regarding the ballot amendments that every county voter will see, every state of Florida voter will see, and it goes specifically over the amendments that Miami and Miami Beach residents will see as well. So take a look at onlyinmiami.co. It's got a lot of important information about these ballot amendments. However, That is not the only item on the ballot. In fact, there's a lot of important positions. And what I'd like to tell you this week is that tomorrow, if you're making your choice, 
you need to vote on all of the elections. And what's very important to know is that there are numerous state legislature and state senate seats. And in Tallahassee, which is where all of our uh, you know, important water issues are decided, there is an imbalance. There is one-party rule, and with that one-party rule, we are seeing the ecological disasters that are befalling our coastlines. We are seeing an outright ignorance of sea level rise and climate change problems. So it is my endorsement for all voters in Miami-Dade County accepting Senate District 38 to vote the Democratic ticket. And I'll tell you why. The Republican Party of Florida has pretty much sold out to big sugar interests for years. And that is where all of the environmental disasters flow from. That doesn't even mention the ecological problems caused by Florida Power and Light and the failure of our Public Service Commission to regulate the utilities to whom we've given monopolies to do business in Florida. The Republican Party is deeply in bed with the public utility monopolies. And those two issues alone, forgetting all of the many others, but those two issues alone are why I tell you that the Republican Party has not earned any of our voters' trust in Miami-Dade County. And that is why, accepting District 38, I recommend that voters select Democrat for all of the state Senate and state legislature seats. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Shoulder leans over and says, Do you? 
Oh, welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, Podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And check out our three-minute Miami-Dade County uh, electoral guide. It's very important if you're going to go out there and vote and you have questions about the many ballot initiatives, go to onlyinmiami.co. It's right there on the front page. And we're back live with Craig Pittman. He is the author of Oh, Florida, How America's Weirdest State Influences the Rest of the Country. Craig, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, Craig, uh, tell your uh, tell our audience a little bit about what inspired you to write this book about Florida, because you do cover quite a bit of news of the weird, but there's got to be some reason that you decided now to pull it all together into Oh, Florida. Well, uh, you know, in case you hadn't noticed, we're having an, an election right now. I don't know if you've heard about it. I, somebody uh, told me. Yeah, uh, and, you know, as usual, once every four years, the nation gives Florida the side eye and wonders how we wound up controlling the fate of democracy and, and the world and wh- how we're going to drop the ball this time. <laughs> and so I wanted to write a, write a book that was sort of geared toward explaining to the rest of the country, this is why Florida is the way it is, and uh, also we're not... You know, we're not always the punchline state. We've done a lot of stuff here that has influenced people's lives, you know, for good or for ill, that they may not even realize. For instance, I tell in the book about the guy who invented the first computer, grew up in Polk County, and uh, his dad was a phosphate mining engineer who carried a slide rule, and young John Adonassoff became fascinated by his dad's slide rule, and that led him down the path to inventing, you know, that thing we used to watch cat videos on all day. <laughs> there you go. That's exactly what the world needed. <laughs> cat <Yeah>. videos. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, you know, uh, um, so it's a mix of, uh, you know, weird Florida stories, you know, weird road rage stories. My favorite road rage stories in there, the, the uh, man in road rage incident runs over self, That's which is just the perfect florida headline that is the Uh, perfect florida headline there was another one there was another florida man uh who ran himself over like recently at a strip club (laughs) that was a good florida headline (laughs) yes that was great because he it wasn't just that he he was leaving the strip club and he got in his pickup truck and then fell out of the truck and the truck ran over him it's that the truck continued on and hit a house and the guy saw what he had done and jumped up and ran away on foot, or hobbled away on foot, and left <laughs> behind his ID in the truck so the cops knew who he was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Florida man. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. that's the thing is, uh, you know, and, yeah. and some people are really embarrassed by that, but I always tell people, you know, don't, don't be embarrassed. Be, you know, embrace our weirdness. Embrace how, how odd and unusual we are. We are the most interesting state in the union, you know, like the, the most interesting man in the world beer commercials. We should have our own line of beer commercials. I think we do, don't we? I mean, come <laughs> on, the interesting there's man. There's a line you know. of beer, but there's a line of Florida man beer. We don't have commercials to go with them. That's what we need. We need, our, we need some commercials. <laughs> yeah, we, we do need some commercials. <laughs> Certainly. Certainly we do. So, I mean, let's talk about some of the other weirdness of Florida, because there's quite a lot of it. I mean, I could just kind of throw darts all over the state, but uh, sure. But let me uh, you should pick one. You're the author. Pick one of the incidents from here. uh, Do you want one from from Miami? Yeah, let's pick a Miami one, because, you know, this is there's a reason this is called the only in Miami show. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, did, did, does Miami Beach count? Because one of my favorite sure. stories comes from Miami Beach. Let's um, do it. Uh, this is a case where uh, something weird from that happened in Florida wound up influencing the rest of the country. Uh, two crooked Miami Beach cops 
I know you're shocked to hear that. Uh, oh, no, there's no cops. crooked cops here. No, no. <laughs> uh, uh, they would go out and work their beat during the day, and then at night they'd go back and break into businesses and steal money out of the cash registers. Okay. And one cop would stand guard while the other one went into the businesses, and they would communicate by walkie-talkie. Well, one night, a uh, ham radio operator uh, couldn't get to sleep, so he got out of bed and turned on his radio, and he picked up their transmissions purely by accident. And after listening for a few minutes, he realized what he was hearing, and started tape recording it. And then the next day, you know, turned it over to someone who passed it along to the cops. Of course, the cops listened to it and go, you know, oh, my God, it's Bert and Ernie. We know those guys. Um, then they did nothing, they were, right? <laughs> well, no, no, no. They, they arrested them. And oh, they, they did? Were put okay. on trial. Yep, they were put on trial and convicted. Um, and their attorney, Joel Hirshhorn, uh, appealed the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, not based on the evidence in court, but based on the fact there had been a TV camera in the courtroom as part of this year-long experiment where Florida was experimenting with, with uh, ha- allowing TV cameras in, and the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, uh, we think having a TV camera in there is fine, and that's why we now have TV cameras in state courts all over the, all over the land, and you could watch the O.J. trial gavel to gavel or Casey Anthony or whatever. Sure. So uh, all, all thanks to a couple of crooked Miami Beach cops and a ham radio operator with insomnia. Okay, yeah, that's... <laughs> so, in other words, a couple of crooked Miami Beach cops made the OGA trial happen. Yeah, yeah, made it made it available to all of us to watch and, and be amazed by. So, yeah. we should thank them. Well, you know... <laughs> they're out of prison by now. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, a, a lot of people say there's always a Miami connection, and I think one of the best uh, crazy Miami connections is that four of the five Watergate burglars are from Miami. Oh, absolutely, yes. And, and, and the, to me, the larger point is nobody from Florida has ever been elected president, but people from Florida have frequently tripped up other folks trying to be president or who are president. You know, we've got we've Gary got, Hart. Got, yes, you mentioned. Yeah, well, the Gary. Yes, that's that's my that's one of my favorite examples. But yeah, uh, what are the Watergate burglars? Uh, there was a guy from from North Florida, from Live Oak, who was part of the Lincoln assassination conspiracy. Uh, he actually bungled his assignment, as you might might be surprised to learn, uh, and wound up posing for one of the early police mugshots. Um, uh, and yeah, Gary Hart, who uh, was having uh, having an affair with a Miami. Actress, can you hear the quotation marks there? Actress, actress, uh, and, right? And got a got his picture taken with her sitting on his lap and next to a next to a party boat. You know, that was named the Monkey Business, and he's wearing the Monkey Business shirt. And uh, Florida reporters, Miami Herald reporters, tracked him down and, and showed that he was having an affair. But what I really like about the story is is that that wasn't what killed his campaign. What killed his campaign was another Florida-based newspaper that got hold of the picture. And published it, and that was the National Enquirer, based in Lantana. Right. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the Herald. The Herald is not in that business. No, no the Herald. The Herald nailed him, but they they didn't end his campaign. What ended his campaign was the picture that That's was so published funny. by the National Enquirer. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, let's talk about those guys because they've been oddly active this news or this general election as supporting yeah. one of the candidates. Now, 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 you know, they moved back to New York, and I think that's to, that's to blame for everything. I think that they lost uh. touch with their Florida roots, and so uh, that's why they're not giving us all the information about, you know, uh, 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 you know Elvis being alive and who the aliens would, space aliens would. would well, actually, I've, I've got <laughs> one better for you, and this is a true story. Okay. The National Enquirer hired a Playboy Playmate that was having an affair with Donald Trump in 2006, oh, yeah. and that, they call yeah. it a uh, what is this snatch and and cover or something <laughs> like where they basically they yeah. they put the lid on it yeah yeah, yeah they they the hired her to a personal service contract just to keep mm-hmm. her quiet yeah oh yeah 
I mean, how odd is that? A, a <laughs> news outlet that's paying people six figures sure. to say nothing. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, and uh, somebody pointed out to me, I'd forgotten about this, but um, Florida has, has another role in the Watergate case other than just the, the, uh, the uh, burglars, the Watergate burglars. Uh, oh, yeah? Nixon came to a, a conference of Associated Press managing editors uh, at Walt Disney World while he was under fire for the whole Watergate thing, and that's where he made his famous I am not a crook speech. Was it Walt Disney World? (laughs) Disney World. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's the perfect place to spin out a fantasy. (laughs) Uh, Oh, why didn't they make that Um, a ride at Disney? That would have been more exciting. It would be. It would be slide down the president's nose. Um, Now, another, uh, you you might like, there was another, uh, there's another chapter in the book. The book is organized by topic. So, you know, there's a chapter on sin and salvation. There's a chapter on, uh, you know, cops and crooks. And there's one on gambling uh, that talks about Meyer Lansky uh, and and him controlling the you know the gambling uh, casinos there in in Miami as well as down in in Cuba and uh, there was a good government group that was trying to shut down one of his casinos in Hallandale and uh, they actually got a, a court judgment saying that they had to had to shut down this place called the plantation so uh, so Lansky looks at the at the judicial order and then gives and says okay I know what to do and he tells people what to do and so they go out and tear down the plantation and then on an adjacent piece of property they build the exact same gambling casino and call it the farm <laughs> and they they <laughs> it's not covered by the order so <laughs> they wow. open up and everything just keeps going like nothing happened <laughs> <laughs> well I mean the, speaking of the chapters I've got to read some of these on air because they're pretty funny I mean it starts with growing up Floridian, um, yep. but then it proceeds quickly to flirting with disaster, getting stucco, <laughs> trading gators for beer, on the beach, road warriors, the Tower of Power, and the Gunshine State. Let's let's talk about something from the Gunshine State because there are some funny gun stories here, not just. Oh sure. Ones. Well, you know, we we lead the country in concealed weapons permits, and I, I suspect that's also when we lead the country in accidental shootings. <laughs> you know, oh, people, you don't say. I know people conceal their weapons and they forget they have them, and they you know they reach for something in their pocket, and the gun falls out and goes off, and you know five people are wounded. So that, although my favorite one is the guy who went bowling with a gun in his pocket, and when he, he made, you know he went up to the went up to the line and you know rolled what was going to be a, a strike, and the gun fell out and shot him in the buttock. Oh gosh. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's too many of those stories. Too many of those stories. Well, uh, Craig, tell our audience a little bit about what you do for a day job because you still write with the Tampa Bay Times, right? Yes, that's right. I'm I'm the environmental reporter for the Tampa Bay Times. I've been doing that since 1998. I've almost got the hang of it. Um, <laughs> and it, it's it really is the best job in American journalism because the number one, they're paying me to go out and ride around on a boat now and again. Um, and the other part of it is I get to cover some of the really weird stuff that goes on in Florida, like, you know, pythons battling alligators in the Everglades, um, taxpayers footing the bill for the captive breeding of the Key Largo wood rat. Uh, and, and somebody had to watch them, by the way. Somebody had to watch the rats. So if you ever think your job is bad, just remember the guy who had to watch the rats breeding. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I got to write about uh, the giant African land snails uh, there in Miami-Dade County, which is that, you know, we have, Florida has more invasive species than any other state, but my favorite, everybody knows about the pythons. My favorite one is the giant African land snails, because they were smuggled into Miami by a religious cult that believed that they were uh, 
uh, they would uh, drinking their mucus would make people healthy. Of oh well, the naturally, it had the opposite effect. Yes, <laughs> and so one of the people who is accused of smuggling them in was this lady who uh, allegedly uh, put the snails under her dress and then flew from Nigeria to, to Miami Dade. And I just like to picture the guy sitting next to her in the airplane seat, <laughs> looking over and going, "Ma'am, did you know your dress is slowly undulating back and forth?" <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, you could write a whole other book just on things that people smuggle into Florida. Oh, absolutely. Oh, sure. Well, my last book was called The Sin of Scandal, and it was about an orchid that was smuggled into Florida through the through the Miami-Dade uh, airport. Uh, it was the, considered the biggest uh, orchid discovery of a century, but the guy had no permits to bring it in, and he <laughs> took it over to, I know, he took it over to, to Selby Botanical Gardens in Sarasota and got him to name it after him, which somebody later said was like hanging a sign on his back saying, please come arrest me. Oops. <laughs> so they did. <laughs> <laughs> that book, by the way, The, the Sin of Scandal, uh, there's no other book like it uh, that I know of that's ever been published, because on the back it says it's classified as true crime slash gardening. that is a feat indeed that is a feat indeed (laughs) i always feel bad for the bookstore clerks trying to figure out where which shelf it goes how to categorize that right (laughs) well craig tell (laughs) craig tell our audience where can they find you on twitter and on Uh, the web my my uh uh twitter handle is at craig times uh, and I post, that's actually how this book got started. I was posting these stories on Twitter, you know, it tagged as O Florida. And uh, an editor from Slate saw them and asked me to blog about Florida during the month of the George Zimmerman trial. So I did. And that led to the, the book contract. Uh, and if people want to see me, I'll be at the Miami uh, Book Fair International on uh, uh, the 19th, 12.30 to 1.30. I'll be on a panel with uh, the great Tim Dorsey. Okay. Who uh, has a great has a great line in his new in his new book that I wish I had thought of? He said, "Florida is the pace car of dysfunction." <laughs> we spoke with Tim earlier on the show. He's a great guy. Coconut oh, yeah. cowboys, coconut cowboys. Yes. But that's fiction. Your stuff is nonfiction, and I like that no, more. No, no, you couldn't possibly make this make up the stuff that I write about. And it's, see that to me, uh, Tim's got a much harder job than I do because he's got to try and invent stuff that's crazy. I'm just I just open the paper. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. right there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's really it is all right there. It is all right there. So, Craig, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. For our, for our listeners, definitely check out the Miami Book Fair International. You can see Craig Pittman there, 1230 to 130 p.m. on Saturday, November 19th. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show.
Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live with Libby Chamberlain. Libby started a Facebook group two weeks ago that went from zero to 1.8 million members. It's called Pantsuit Nation. And Libby, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. Thank you for having me. So Libby, tell our audience a little bit about Pantsuit Nation. What is your Facebook group about? Sure. So I started the group, uh, like you said, a little over two weeks ago uh, as a place for supporters of Hillary Clinton to gather and uh, share enthusiasm about the candidate and about the upcoming election. Uh, It's a group where friends invite friends in, and so it it grew very rapidly. We had over 24,000 people uh, in about 24 hours, and then from there, like you said, grew to almost 2 million people at this point. I think we'll get there by tonight, which is really incredible. That's amazing. And it's all about being pro. Yeah, it is. It is. It's crazy. It's awesome. Um, And it's, uh, it's all about, like I said, being positive, sharing stories about why this election and this candidate are so important to us. So uh, why did you choose Pantsuit Nation? What, what inspired you f- to, to use that name? Well, it was the morning after the third, elect, um, excuse me, the third debate, and I thought Hillary looked incredible in her pantsuit, and I thought, I was uh, chatting with a friend of mine, I thought I wanted to wear a pantsuit on November 8th just to sort of um, honor her and think about the symbolism of the pantsuit and what it means for a women's right for, you know, fight for equality in our country. And, um, you know, the pantsuit is often misunderstood or or, uh, maligned in our culture, especially by younger people, thinking that it's sort of a dowdy symbol or, you know, only for people that don't have a lot of style. And I I wanted to sort of reappropriate it as a feminist symbol, um, but also as something that we can really use to celebrate uh, Hillary Clinton. And, and, um, you know, she she loves her her pantsuits and we love her for it. And so that kind of became the symbol and the rallying cry for this group of people to come together and start sharing stories about um, about her and about themselves. And as I understand it, those pantsuits actually require quite a bit of maintenance, right? I mean, they're they're just like the the woolen suits that the guys wear. They actually uh, they need a lot of special care. You know, I'm not a great person to ask about that because <laughs> I'm not a pantsuit wearer myself. Well, now you are, right? I had to go out and actually buy one uh, to wear tomorrow on Election Day because, um, you know, I I live in a sort of rural area and uh, pantsuit is not part of my usual wardrobe. So I'll have to take your word on that one. (laughs) Gotcha. So uh, what kind of posts do you guys talk about in the Pantsuit Nation group? What kind of uh, what kind what's the typical post like in this group? Because it's growing rapidly. So I'm sure that several members of our listening audience have already joined it. And I can tell you that after I got invited into the group, I saw that my wife was already a member. Yeah, that happens all the time where people will come in and they'll start um, sort of looking around and realize that many of the people that they already know are part of the group, which is really incredible. And in terms of the stories that people are sharing, we really encourage people to write first-person narratives about experiences that they've had either uh, as a supporter of Hillary Clinton or just a a part of this country and... um, some of the stories are about challenges that people have faced, whether it's fighting for 
um, access to, to health care or um, women's reproductive rights or about uh, citizenship struggles or um, things you know of that nature and writing about how it's important to them to have a candidate that uh, supports um, the things that are important to them, but also just sharing, you know, funny stories and happy stories about, you know, dressing up like Hillary for, for Halloween or, um, you know, running into people in pantsuits at, at, you know, the local uh, store and saying, hey, are you are you in a pantsuit for the reason that I think you're in a pantsuit and, and sharing um, kind of funny encounters like that. So it really, one of the things that's, that's amazing is that the stories that are shared really reflects the diversity um, of the group, people coming from all all places along the spectrum in terms of politics, in terms of background, in terms of age and, um, you know, ethnicity, all of that kind of thing are really reflected within the membership. And so the stories are just as, as diverse as, as our members are. That's awesome. So how does somebody actually find this fairly secret Facebook group? What's the best way if one of our listeners yeah, so- wants to join for them to get in? Right. Yeah, that's that's the really challenging thing is that as we grow and, and the word gets out in, in various uh, publications and media outlets, people are interested. But the only way to become part of the group is for a current member to invite you in. So uh, you got to ask around your friends and see if you can get one of those invitations at this point. Gotcha. So anybody that's a member of the group already can invite their friends? Correct. Okay. So our listeners should ask their friends if they are a member of Pantsuit Nation, if they want to join, right? Yeah, and the other thing that you can do is follow along on some of our social media channels, uh, especially today and tomorrow. We're really going to be um, having a lot going on over on Twitter, which is at Pantsuit Nation and Instagram, which is at Pantsuit Nation. And then um, on our public Facebook page, which is, is really different than the group, uh, but at least that's something that everyone can see, which is uh, if you just type in Pantsuit Nation on Facebook, you'll see the public version. Um, and we're going to be posting uh, lots of photos of people wearing pantsuits, getting out the vote uh, to elect Hillary Clinton. That's amazing. And I am going to share that with our audience on Twitter. So if you go to my Twitter account, you'll see the Pantsuit Nation information. If you want to find out more, you can find them on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter just by looking for Pantsuit Nation. And, um, you know, I think it's a great thing to have a very positive Uh, messaging group in this year's election. Libby, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. Mama always said we were royalty She even said it's staring in the face of poverty Is that insanity or vanity? I think it's nothing but the power of the mind Believe she put it in me Because I live on my dreams I give my fantasies wings One day I'm gonna be king I'm gonna make that woman so proud of a son I know you heard about change It's gonna come One question, will you be there? Will you be there? I'll be there with my hands held high in the air Like a champion Cause I demand the win Time saver traffic. 
Busy in Miami Day. We're looking at slow traffic on 95 northbound from downtown up past 125th Street. Dolphin slow westbound between 95 and 27th Avenue. And the Dolphin slow westbound around 27th Avenue. And as we go up to Pompano, we're stopping going 95 southbound between Atlantic Boulevard and Cypress Creek Road. That's your South Florida traffic. Welcome back. This is the Only in Miami show, and I'm your host, Grant Stern. You can find me on Twitter at Grant Stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co, iTunes, podcast, SoundCloud, and a whole lot more. Check it out at onlyinmiami.co. And we're back live with Marvin Dunn. He wrote A History of Florida Through Black Eyes. Marvin, thank you so much for joining us on the program tonight. My pleasure. So, Dr. Dunn, tell our audience a little bit about your book. Well, uh, this book took 70 years to write. It covers the presence of people of African descent in Florida from the arrival of Ponce de Leon in 1513, uh, all the way up through the uh, 1980 riot in Miami. Uh, the book covers several periods of history in Florida, uh, including slavery, Reconstruction, the Civil War, uh, the book covers uh, lynching and anti-black violence in some detail. I went to many of the places in Florida where lynchings, mass lynchings and acts of anti-black violence took place, talked to descendants of people who were lynched, talked to descendants of people who did the lynching, uh, put together about a dozen stories of anti-black violence in Florida to try to help people understand uh, how horrid that period was for blacks in Florida. Florida had a higher lynching rate than Mississippi and Alabama uh, for reasons that I can go into later. So the book covers uh, that difficult subject. It covers the civil rights movement in Florida, particularly in Tallahassee and St. Augustine, um, and as I said, uh, up to the 1980 riot in Miami. So the book stops at about 1980-81. Uh, Dr. Dunn, let's talk about a couple of specific periods that I think are extremely relevant uh, to modern politics, which are the Jim Crow era and the Civil Rights Movement era. And I'd like to start with the, the Jim Crow era. How did Jim Crow start in Florida, which is the, the period of time where southern states were making openly discriminatory laws and American That's apartheid? Right. Well, it started in 1896. It started the very year that Miami was founded, 1896. Uh, in that year, the United States Supreme Court ruled in a very famous case known as Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that racial separation is legal as long as the facilities uh, and services are equally provided to both races. Uh, so that cast in constitutional stone the right to discriminate in transportation, schools, public facilities, uh, and across the board. And uh, Miami was uh, very much like the other parts of the South in terms of enforcing very strict Jim Crow rules. I was born in Central Florida in 1940. 
uh, as the uh, Jim Crow era was as bad as it got. Yeah, that was the height of it. Yes, I saw the colors on the uh, water fountains. I sat on the back of the bus. In fact, I rode to college on the back of a Greyhound bus because of the the, the, the practice of the time. Uh, so Florida was a, very, it was a Jim Crow state. You could get killed in Florida for violating no rules. Um, I think you no, still can, which is kind of the sad point of why I wanted to discuss the Jim Crow era in particular. Well, uh, I, I not don't as really, often. I, I not as often. Been, I'm sorry, you were, you were asking a question. I, I interrupted you. No, no, no. I mean, I'm saying it's not as often as, as back then, but it, it still does happen in Florida. I mean, uh, I think a great example of that is Corey Jones, a young man. Oh, yes. Yes, that's right. That's correct. We do we have isolated incidents of lynchings today. Um, they're not as prominent or as public uh, as they were. But basically, after the 1934 lynching of a black man named Claude Neal in Suwannee County in Florida, it was so public. Uh, in, in fact, it was announced in the newspapers around the country, day, at least a day before it happened. Uh, after that very public lynching, which was gruesome in terms of the kinds of things that happened to Claude Neal, who was accused of raping a white woman, uh, that uh, lynching dropped off after after that after that event. But you're quite right; it still continued. It still continues up today. They're up to today, and I think in the light of the political climate. This very evening, as we speak, it's not beyond my comprehension uh, that depending on what happens tomorrow, uh, we could be back into an era when uh, lynching uh, reemerges in American culture. It's it's a scary thought. It really is. Um, it is. When you have, when you have the KKK uh, endorsing a candidate for president, that sends a very strong message that uh, racial hatred and bitterness uh, and the need for retribution as some as some. Uh, white people, particularly white men in the South, see it, is still very much alive and well. The only thing that stopped lynching, frankly, was the likelihood of getting caught. Right. And finally, after the Claude Neal lynching and another very violent uh, and public uh, lynching in 1951 in Florida, when Harry T. Moore and his wife were bombed to death in MIMS, uh, the federal government got involved. The FBI came into the, 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 the Moore killing. Uh, and once the Fed said, listen, uh, you can't do this, uh, the federal government will prosecute these cases if state governments, if state authorities don't, uh, then you had a diminution of, of lynching. But again, as you said earlier, it went underground, not nearly as frequent as it had been before, and certainly not in the sort of public circus-like atmosphere that happened in the 1930s and 40s. Well, you know, there's a lot of these problems not as bad. And certainly in different forms, they persist today. Um, and, and I think that it's important that you brought up St. Augustine when it comes to the, the civil rights movement, because yes. I think that most Floridians do not realize that a Flor- a Flor- the oldest city in the country and a premier tourist destination in Florida actually has the worst track record of racial discrimination in the state, too. Well, Saint, Saint Augustine, I covered St. Augustine in some detail. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. went to St. Augustine uh, to try to uh, lead, in fact, he did lead uh, civil rights demonstrations in St. Augustine. It was a disaster. Right. It he he tried to work. integrate a swimming pool. And uh, among other places. Among yeah. other places. But, I mean, he tried to integrate a swimming pool. I mean, I, th- I think it's it's important for our listening audience who may not understand this. It's like 
they literally kind of went to war with him because he tried to integrate a well, swimming let, pool. Let me tell you what happened at that, at that swimming pool in St. Augustine. Uh, Dr. King and some other black and white civil rights demonstrators went into uh, the Monson Motor Lodge swimming pool uh, as an attempt to desegregate swimming pools in, in St. Augustine. The uh, manager of the motel, whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, in order to get them out of the swimming pool as they were in the pool, poured acid into the swimming pool. And uh, the demonstrators still did not exit the pool. Uh, it, it, the next day they came back, and the manager put a live alligator into the swimming pool to try to force the demonstrators out. They still didn't get out. It took the police to wade into the swimming pool and drag these people out and arrest them to, uh, to end the demonstration at the Monson Motor Lodge. St. Augustine was very, very violent. King was frightened in St. Augustine. He had to be hidden from night to night, couldn't sleep in the same place. Uh, in two nights in a row. So the King left uh, St. Augustine saying that St. Augustine was as bad as any place he'd seen in the South and uh, gave up on St. Augustine and from St. Augustine went to Selma. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was, uh, you know, when I found that out, uh, I think it was after like my second or third visit to St. Augustine. It makes you view these places in a very different way. Well, now, hold on. You know, the black people, black, black people and Spanish people were in St. Augustine uh, in the 1500s. Yeah. And there were not these problems. You had a black middle class, a black upper class in St. Augustine in the 1600s. Well, uh, uh, St. Augustine uh, was a mecca for black slaves from Georgia. Uh, you know, it was not heaven, but you had some extremely wealthy, I mean, extremely wealthy black families in St. Augustine in the 1600s. Well, uh, who left St. Augustine in 1821 when finally uh, the Spanish were kicked out of Florida and, and Americans took over. But my point is that Spanish and black people, people of African descent, coexisted, in fact, existed in, in, in quite complementary to, to, to each other in St. Augustine going back 200 years before English-speaking white people ever entered Florida. Uh, and that were not these problems. The problem, the problem in Florida, to tell you the truth, Began, began in terms of race relations when the Spanish left Florida and white people, mainly white farmers from Georgia and South Carolina, in the, the aftermath of the Civil War and their plantations and farms were destroyed, moved into Florida, brought slaves with them, and then instituted a system of enslavement uh, that was not unlike what had happened during the, the, before the Civil War. So you had a lot of Confederates moving into Florida in the 1860s, 1870s, angry, disgruntled, having lost the Civil War, and intent upon controlling blacks. So Florida had a lot of problems uh, in the 1870s because of the influx of so many Confederates uh, into the state. Well, ironically, uh, this comes from another history book that I was reading that I actually got at the Miami Book Fair International. And let's tell our audience really briefly, Dr. Dunn, uh, when will you be presenting at the Miami Book Fair this year? Uh, this, uh, this, oh, I put, I put it up on my, on my Facebook page. It's the last Sunday of the Book Fair. Okay, so that's Sunday, November weekend, 20th. Sunday at 4.30, yes. It's yes, the last day uh, at 4.30. So something that I discovered in a book from the Book Fair... Um, it was called uh, the Cracker History of Florida, uh, the history of crackers in Florida, which is a very interesting topic itself uh, because it kind of goes hand in hand. They were another group that was frowned upon by the authorities, and in particular when Florida was owned by the Spanish 
the Spanish looked down at the white people, and they thought the white people were just a lot of trouble. <laughs> so well, they were. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they were, you had Georgians entering Spanish Florida uh, against the law. Andrew Jackson led, uh, brought troops into, into Florida against international law. Uh, so the Spanish view of Americans back before the establishment of American, of, uh, of before the Spanish were uh, kicked out of Florida, was for good reason very negative. Uh, the Georgians in particular uh, kept raiding in the, uh, Spanish plantations, taking blacks who had escaped into Spanish Florida back to their plantations and their chains in Georgia and South Carolina. So there was a lot of friction uh, between uh, white uh, American planters and the Spanish, because the Spanish hid and protected uh, and encouraged black slaves to come into Spanish Florida. Well, Dr. Dunn, we're going to take a very short break, but we're going to bring you back afterwards, all right? Sure. And we'll be right back. This is the Only in Miami show. on point and a walk is mean the crowd parts like the sea they can look but a touch they can only dream he loves a challenge so he licks his lips he's inspired by her arrogance his first words make her body tense she can't leave cause she feels his strength now she can't help but listen but she's down to her last defense and she says why you being so persistent he says i speak what i want into existence she never heard a man talk like this never seen somebody so confident driven to the point of death guess what he wants even if it means no With the sweetest taste He left the heart with a warm embrace He took her mind to another place And the effects lasted for days No ordinary love story exists That could illustrate how the spark was lit And why his love gave a spirit a lift The puzzle piece just perfectly fits But with the sunshine came the rain Pouring down great clouds of pain Everything started to change After that he was never the same Still bound to the very end with the power within all the fears blew away with the wind she was stronger than she'd ever been Ooh, welcome back this is the only in miami show and i'm your host grant stern you can find me on twitter at grant stern and everything about the show at www.onlyinmiami.co itunes podcast soundcloud and a whole lot more check it out at onlyinmiami.co and we're back live with Dr. Marvin Dunn. He is the author of A History of Florida Through Black Eyes. Dr. Dunn, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Sure, my pleasure. So we're on the eve of a historic election. Let's talk about the impact of voter suppression on black voters and minority voters in Florida through the years, and especially through the last 50 years, let's say. Well, the best place to start would be 1920. Uh, when women got the vote, including black women, 
uh, that was tremendous opposition to black voting in Florida in the 1920 elections. And in Miami, in fact, violence uh, preceded uh, the 1920 elections. Uh, one of the worst race riots in Florida took place in Ocoee, Florida, in Lake County. Um, that's that's like uh, where I seventy five and I ten meet, right? That, that that's correct. That's that's correct. Uh, but that was in part over over voting. So you had from from, from the time it uh, it became particularly in nineteen forty seven when blacks could legally join the Democratic Party. It really became a very, very hotly contested issue in Florida, black voting. Prior to 1947, black people could not join the Democratic Party in Florida. So they were locked out of the primary elections, which were the only elections that mattered in Florida. Right, because Florida was a one-party state for decades after the Civil War. That's right, up until 1947, when a case in Texas uh, settled the matter, and the U.S. Supreme Court said that blacks could not be excluded from from the Democratic Party. I mean, my parents were Republicans. Uh, until 1952 and 1953, because they could not join the Democratic Party. So when blacks finally could join the Democratic the Democratic Party, things got very tough in Florida and throughout the South in the attempt to try to suppress the black vote. It didn't work. Uh, blacks voted in droves. Uh, we saw and see the results of that in terms of the election of black public officials uh, starting in the 1950s, particularly the 1960s and 70s. Uh, because of the, the fact that blacks were now Democrats and voted in primaries and their votes counted uh, as they do today. Blacks, just to wrap up this point, black, the black vote in Florida, and in, in South Florida especially, uh, has always been the tiebreaker. Because when white people uh, are divided on issues, candidates, public issues, or what have you, the black vote becomes central. Uh, this is what happened in Metro Rail back when that was voted upon, all the way back to the very incorporation of the city of Miami. So the black vote has been a swing vote in South Florida and remains so in Florida uh, even today. And it's making a very big difference as we speak tonight. That is correct. In fact, yesterday was, the, the I think, the souls to the polls day, basically, like the uh-huh. big one, because uh, all of the election like metrics really swung. And right. the the advantage of Democrats, like registered Democrats who voted over registered Republicans, ballooned from 0.6 to 1.4 percent of right. the electorate. So that's correct. That's I mean, correct. But but I, I have a very particular question that maybe you can answer. When did disenfranch- disenfranchisement of those convicted of felonies come about in Florida? Because it's one of the last large vestiges of Jim Crow era law that affects hundreds of thousands of Floridians today. I, I trace it back to Claude Kirk, uh, who I think was the first Republican elected to the governorship in Florida, and then after him, a succession of Republican governors who were buying into the into the Republican Party, lock them up and throw away the key uh, uh, view, uh, going back into the 1960s and 70s. Uh, so I, you, you, once you, once you, once Republicans began controlling the governor's mansion in Florida and the state legislature in Florida, you had a movement towards mass incarceration of African Americans in particular, uh, especially as it related to drug uh, crimes. Not just crack, I, might, I remind you, but even in terms of marijuana. 
so you had in the, in the 1970s especially uh, uh, the 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 uh, 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 maximum uh, terms, uh, no parole, uh, throw away the key philosophy in Florida, and we're now paying the price for that. Uh, what I do now after uh, my, I finish my work with this book is to uh, work with attorneys who are trying to get men off death row who have been sentenced to death uh, based upon uh, crimes that probably today would not have amounted to a death sentence. Uh, and we just see the, the, the result of this mass incarceration, particularly for, dr- for minor uh, drug crimes, including uh, marijuana, having affected the society, the society in Florida in particular, in a very, very dramatic and negative way. I see it uh, often every day when I go into these prisons. So are you hopeful when you see uh, an election ballot with a, 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 an amendment that's like Amendment 2, that it may be the first step towards ending the mass incarceration in Florida? Yes, yes. And I give the Obama administration and the, the Justice Department under Obama credit for that. Because they said, listen, we are not going to continue to use federal law as a base to lock up thousands of people, particularly minority group members, group members uh, for relatively minor nonviolent, I re- re- repeat, nonviolent crimes. We just aren't going to pro- uh, prosecute those, 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 those crimes, and we're going to ameliorate those who have been arrested uh, for relatively minor drug offenses uh, at the federal level. And that sent a great signal to states. And we see the effect of that with decriminalization of marijuana and uh, other relatively victimless drug crimes around the country. It's kind of ironic that it took a Democratic, an African-American Democratic president to honor states' rights, huh? Who would have thought? Dr. Dunn, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. It has been a pleasure. You're welcome. Uh, Do you have a website or any other social media uh, contacts you'd like to share with our audience? I use my Facebook extensively. I put up Black History Lessons almost every day. Uh, If people uh, uh, request a a friend on my Facebook page, um, you would be uh, exposed to the many, many uh, 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 Black History uh, photographs and stories that I post on my my Facebook page. Well, thank you so much for calling, Dr. Dunn. That's all the time we have for tonight. And we'll be back next Monday night. This is the Only in Miami show.